0: Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 8. The Spirits of Santa Cruz Island. California is known for its beaches, but unlike other water-adjacent states such as New York or Florida, it is not known for its islands. Alcatraz is an exception, of course, but that's an island within San Francisco Bay, not an offshore landmass. That California's islands are not well known is understandable. Only Catalina Island boasts a population of any real size, and even it is little more than a small town and an even smaller outlying village that caters to the tourist industry. There are other islands off of California's coast but with the exception of a military presence on San Clemente Island, the others range from barely inhabited to totally barren of human life. Some are really little more than rocks battered by the ocean. Nonetheless, many of these islands are rich in ecology, such as the Channel Islands of the Southern California coast, which are often compared to the Galapagos Islands of South America. Today's stories are centered on Santa Cruz Island, which is part of the Northern Channel Islands chain. This island chain is an extension of Southern California's transverse mountain ranges that sticks out into the ocean, creating these weird, elongated islands. I've always thought the air photos of the islands looked vaguely like some form of microscopic life, but that probably says more about me than it says about the islands. Santa Cruz Island is a rugged place, with peaks up to 2,500 feet in height, as well as picturesque beaches, and a variety of other landscapes as well. The human history on the islands is deep. The archaeological record on the islands provides a lot of information about human history in North America. The oldest dated human skeleton in the Americas, dated to 13,000 years ago, was found on Santa Rosa Island, which neighbors Santa Cruz Island. While nobody knows how the early settlers of either island would have described themselves, by the time the Spanish arrived, the people who lived both there and in the mainland areas across from the islands, stretching from northern Los Angeles County to San Luis Obispo County, and as far inland as the outskirts of modern-day Bakersfield, were an ethno-linguistic group known as the Chumash, though originally, the term Chumash referred only to the island-dwelling part of the population. As the 19th century ran on, additional people came to visit the islands and, at times, call them home. Chinese Harbor on Santa Cruz Island is, as far as I can determine, named for a Chinese abalone fishing camp that formed nearby. The Chinese population of California was generally mistreated during the 19th century, but it nonetheless endured, and settlement pockets occupied solely by Chinese migrants were not uncommon. According to local story collector Richard Sinnott, one of the Chinese abalone fishermen was out one day prying abalone off of the rocks at low tide. He got his hand stuck under a large shellfish as it clung to a boulder. While preparing to use his pry bar to pull it off the rock, he slipped and dropped the tool. He then realized that the tide was coming in. As the water climbed further up his legs, he realized that he would soon drown. Panicked, he decided to use his knife and cut off his own hand, intending to flee to higher ground. But as he cut through his wrist, he became weak from blood loss, and no sooner had he finished this grisly surgery than he collapsed into the water, drowning. Although his body was recovered and sent back to China for burial, his hand never was found. Senate states that people report seeing a man in 19th century Chinese clothing wandering the intertidal rocks. The spirit of the dead abalone fisherman returned and looking for his hand. At Prisoner's Harbor, on the island's north coast, there are still more tales. Prisoner's Harbor is named so because it is the site of an attempt by the Mexican government to establish a penal colony in 1830. The details are really not well documented, and it's uh, rather sketchy. But apparently the few prisoners who survived the attempt to establish the colony, and it does appear to have been very few, eventually managed to make it back to the mainland where they are said to have settled near the town of Carpinteria. During the time that the colony, such as it was, stood, it was reportedly a violent and desperate place, and fires raised it to the ground on at least one occasion. People visiting the harbor describe a general sense of vague menace and unease here, and the sounds of screams and moans have been reported. Richard Sinnott reported another story about Prisoner's Harbor, one that he learned from a woman who he met after he gave a public lecture. The woman had taken part in a guided tour of the island, and at Prisoner's Harbor, the tour guide claimed that, In the late 18th century, Spanish priests, in their effort to convert the people of the area to Catholicism, had tied a Chumash woman to a tree and demanded that she renounce her native religion. She refused, and so they set the tree on fire. As their victim died in flames, she laid a curse upon the priests, dooming them to misery, but also trapping herself on the island even after death. The tour guide stated that the spirit of the murdered woman leaves footprints on the pier when new visitors arrive, as if she has been watching them and waiting for them. The woman who relayed this story to Sennett then explained that, in the evening after hearing the story, she and a friend were walking on the beach inside of the pier. When they reached the structure, they did, indeed, find wet footprints on the deck, as if someone had just been standing on the pier, despite there not having been anyone there. But now we come to two stories that hold a special place in my heart, As these two stories are associated with the history of ranching on Santa Cruz Island, I'd like to provide some historical context. At the western end of the island is a white 19th century house. A set of bunkhouses and associated facilities are located on the opposite side of a ravine from the house. These buildings are all that remains of Christie Ranch, one of the ranches founded on the island in the 1880s. While there is a good deal of romanticism built up in the Santa Barbara area regarding the island ranches, the truth is that they were always more business ventures than passion projects. Early ranchers, such as William Barron, with money from prominent San Francisco investors, established a sheep ranch on the island and proved its viability in the 1860s. The island was sold in 1869, and by the mid-1880s, a group of investors, again based in San Francisco, had expanded the modest sheep ranch into a self-sustaining operation, and they had also added wine and food production to the sheep ranching. One of the investors, Justinian Kerr, bought all of the shares from the other investors in 1886, becoming the sole owner. Business was good for quite some time, but with Kerr's death, the property was transferred to his wife. From there, it was divided up among her children, and in the 1930s, 90% of the island was sold to pay debts. Ranching continued on the island nonetheless, though other activities also began to find purchase there. Many of these activities were not legal. The part of the island known as Smuggler's Cove was, it turns out, aptly named. Along with the shady dealings, there were still legal activities, including hunting, especially for otter, fishing, and the ever-present ranching, which included animals kept on a 6,000-acre portion on the east end, and which continued up through the 1980s. Ranching was brought to an end as a result of a negative cost-to-benefit ratio of running a ranch on the island. Things weren't helped by a protracted fight between the remaining CAIR-descended ranchers and the federal government, which was trying to buy all of the land on the Northern Channel Islands in order to complete the Channel Islands National Park. From at least the 1960s onward, the Christie Ranch was rented out to visitors who wanted a fun place to stay while recreating on the island. It acted as a private hunting club from 1966 through 1985, and as a base for non-hunting island visitors for a while after that. One LA Times article from the early 1990s gave a rave review to the food served by the cook at the Christie Ranch. By the time I first set foot on the island as part of a research team in 2003, things had changed. The main house was off-limits and locked up. Although the bunkhouses and outbuildings were still standing and were suitable for use as kitchens and workspaces, they had not been retrofitted for earthquakes, and as such were not suitable to sleep in. Working there comprised an odd mix of camping and domestic life. There was running water and hence showers and toilets, not always a given on a research trip. There was electricity, but it was limited and came from a gas-powered generator. There was a telephone in the ranch hands' quarters, but the line had long since been cut. The sign on the wall next to the phone once read, In case of emergency, call 911, but it had been later altered to read, In case of emergency, call God. Oh, and Hantavirus is a known danger in the area, as you would quickly learn from the signs posted throughout the vicinity. A cozy place, all in all. Nonetheless, I very much enjoyed my stay there. It was an excellent project. The Christie Ranch boasts two separate ghost stories. The first is a fairly classic variation on the White Widow story. A young woman married the captain of a ship, and the two made their home on Santa Cruz Island in the ranch house. Depending on the teller, the two have a variety of different names, but none seem to be from either the Baron or the Care family. Regardless of their names, the husband headed out to sea, as sea captains do, leaving his wife behind. As the story goes, for months she stood at the window at the top floor of the house, every day, waiting to see his ship returning but the date of his intended return passed with no sign, and the young woman became worried, despite the reassurance of her friends and family. Eventually, word comes that the ship had sank, and that the captain went down with the ship. The widow's grief devoured her, and she stopped taking care of herself, eventually withering away and dying. To this day, her ghost can be seen, dressed in white, standing at the house's top window, still watching the sea. In a more sinister version of the story, the husband was a slave trader, a fact unknown to the wife until she paid an unexpected visit to a ship while it was in port. On discovering her husband's true business, she scorned him and returned home. On his next trip, his ship sank and he drowned, and the wife again wasted away and died, though this time torn between guilt and disgust over her husband's trade. This version of the story often features the ghost not as a passive watcher of the sea, but as an angry and vengeful force who will do harm to trespassers within the house. One last version of the story, which I found on the Haunted History Facebook group, is that the man, in this version identified as Daniel Reese, was robbing and murdering Chinese laborers that he brought to the island, in between his long journeys out to sea. Or possibly the Chinese laborers who he so mistreated were his cargo, However, I found that version only in one location, whereas the others I'd often heard told by locals when I lived in Santa Barbara. This variation is, however, interesting in that it ties into the same vein of historical context as that of the one-handed Chinese ghost that I discussed earlier. The second story pertaining to Christie Ranch is centered on a bridge that crosses the ravine that separates the main ranch house from the ranch headquarters. One night, while crossing this bridge, A Chumash girl who was working as a domestic servant began to scream. The ranch hands rushed out to see what had happened and found the girl sobbing and gibbering incoherently. They brought her back to the ranch house, where she continued to spout incomprehensible nonsense. Eventually, the girl was taken to a hospital on the mainland, where she died many years later, never having recovered her senses. However, to this day, people report hearing a weird, inhuman scream in the dead of night coming from the bridge and nobody has ever seen its source. In addition to these stories, the ranch has also had reports of strange lights and odd shadows that are seen moving about the ranch house, weird happenings on the land, and the occasional odd noise from an unknown source, usually occurring late at night. Commentary One of the patterns that's become abundantly clear to me over the time that I have collected ghost stories is that the stories often serve as a way of communicating present discomfort with historic truths. This is not true of all ghost stories, but it is true of many of them. The stories of the Chinese Harbor and Prisoner's Harbor ghosts certainly seem to fit this pattern. A record of the degradations and harms suffered by the native Californians after the arrival of Europeans fills much of the room housing the anthropology collections at the University of California Santa Barbara Library, where I attended graduate school. And even that is only a partial and imperfect record. If you're interested in learning more, I would recommend Sherburne Cook's book, Conflict Between the California Indian and White Civilization. It's a collection of papers he wrote for the journal Ibero-Americana. While the title seems rather archaic and more than a bit racist, Cook himself was a historian whose sympathies lay clearly with the native Californians, and he doesn't pull punches when talking about malfeasance on the part of the European and Euro-American colonists. However, even Cook, in his chronicle of misbehavior on the part of white settlers, doesn't report anything quite like the story reported for Prisoner's Harbor. While the Franciscans in California were not saints, even if the Catholic Church did canonize their leader, Junipero Serra, tying someone to a tree and burning it does not seem quite in character for them. This particular scenario plays more like something the tour guide borrowed from a Hammer horror movie than something that actually occurred in the 18th or 19th century California. The priests committed a number of evils, there is no doubt of that, and the Spanish soldiers still more. But this doesn't seem like their general approach to brutality. So I think this story has more to do with a board tour guide than anything else. That said, I think the story stuck with the person who told it to Richard Senate because as we have become less comfortable romanticizing both the Spanish missions and the Wild West, and more likely to consider what happened during the colonial period, we're forced to reckon with the fact that tremendous wrongs were done to the native population and that those of us who live here now benefit from the long-term effects of those wrongs. One way that we can manage that discomfort is through making the colonists so fanatical and so evil that we can easily distance ourselves from them because we, of course, are decent people who would never tie someone to a tree and burn it. Making the priests into two-dimensional baddies allows us to lie to ourselves about the fact that we are the way we are in large part because of when and where we're born. No one wants to acknowledge the uncomfortable fact that if we were 18th century Europeans, we may very well have been supportive of the violence and wrongdoing that happened in California. The other ghost stories of the penal colony are as vague as the actual historical information that is available on the colony. What is known and readily available to the public is that there was an attempt at a penal colony. It failed, but while it was present, it was a brutal and violent place. Very few other details are available to me. It would be a surprise if there were not stories of ghostly screams and feelings of dread attached to this location. What is surprising, though, is that, in the century since the penal colony failed, nobody appears to have taken some poetic license and produced a more compelling set of claims about the location. Well, more's the pity. The story of the Chinese fisherman who had to cut off his hand is less fraught. While the Chinese were poorly treated in 19th century California, This story focuses on a lone fisherman who lived in a small camp or village with other Chinese men. The reasoning behind why they lived in an isolated settlement is not relevant to the immediate story and thus easily ignored. Regardless, I do think that this story indicates an acknowledgement that Chinese workers in the Americas were far from home and might never return, even in death. It's a story that's more melancholy than frightening. And that brings us to the Christie Ranch. As explained before, the land now known as the Christie Ranch served as the base of one of the Kerr family satellite ranches that occupied the seaward portion of Santa Cruz Island. The ranch is no longer used, although descendants of the pigs that were bred there ran roughshod over the island's native flora and fauna for quite some time. The last pig was removed in 2006. The island's ecology was in a bad state, but it has improved greatly since 1978, when the majority of the island was purchased by the Nature Conservancy. The ranch has not been abandoned, however. As I noted earlier, the place served for a time as a quasi-resort of sorts for visitors and hunters. I've not been able to find out when that came to an end, but it clearly was still in use at least as late as 1991. The University of California runs a research facility on the island now, and the Christie Ranch is a satellite base used by researchers on the southwest portion of the island. I think that the history of the island is important in understanding two things. The first is the implausibility of the widow's stories. While it is entirely possible that a seafaring man lived on the island, possibly even in that ranch house, it is more likely that the house was home of the care family descendants who were engaged primarily in ranching. It is possible that some family members had occupations not related to livestock, But the contours of this story are so similar to other White Widow stories from coastal locations in the Americas and Europe that it seems more likely that it was simply applied to this location recently, as opposed to being tied to actual people who lived on the island. The version of the story that involves slave trading is rather implausible. Again, it is possible that someone who lived on the island had a tie to the pre-Civil War slave trade, and possibly even had connections to the slave trade in other parts of the Americas past the end of the Civil War. But California itself was never a slave state. Under the Spanish and Mexican governments, from the early settlement in the late 18th century up through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, which ceded California to the United States, The structure of labor in the Spanish colonies of California was such that imported slaves were not usually practical. The issue of why this is is tied to the nature of the missions and later colonial occupation, and really is a topic too large to get into here. Though, again, I will urge you to read Sherburn Cook's book on colonialism in California. The story of the servant girl is, to me, much more interesting. It's not a particularly unique story, it is, in fact, very similar to the story of another servant girl that I told in episode 1 of this podcast, but while that story of a servant girl in a house in London is certainly creepy, the rural and isolated setting of this version makes it even eerier to me. Also, there is the fact that there is never even an attempt to explain what she saw, and it is not tied to more outrageous or absurd sightings of creatures or spirits, as was the case of the story in episode 1. No. This is just a straightforward creepy story with no real resolution, and the vague sense that it could happen to you, if you happen to be unlucky enough. An innocent being in the wrong place at the wrong time is universally creepy, as we all like to imagine ourselves as innocent and hopefully never in the wrong place. But the story takes away any illusion of control. The very fact that it could be anyone is what makes it scary. The current use of the location as a research base probably explains the ghost stories, at least to some extent. People usually work in groups out there, and the main form of entertainment in the evenings is sitting around the fire pit outside of the ranch hands' quarters, and this, of course, is when the stories come out. I don't know who started these particular stories, or why, but I know that they are now passed on primarily by researchers staying at the ranch. As I previously said, I stayed at the ranch in the summer of 2003 while working on an archaeological research project with my advisor, two of his other graduate students, a graduate student from the University of Oregon, and a set of professors and undergrads from California State University Long Beach. We landed on the island at Prisoner's Harbor, but had no strange encounters ourselves. We took some World War II or possibly Korean War-era surplus military vehicles from the Central Research Station and headed for the Christie Ranch. Before we set up our tents that first night, we had already begun telling each other what we knew about the place, primarily what we knew of the history, geology, and archaeology of the region. But, of course, I brought up the ghost stories. After I told the story of the servant girl, my advisor, Mike, decided to place his tent right by the bridge, leading to the amusement of us all. Later that night, I told the story of the widow in the ranch house, and this led to me being dared to enter the house after sunset. Yep. Here we were, a bunch of adult researchers behaving like 13-year-olds. I agreed, nervously crossed the bridge in the dark, suddenly very aware that this was the same location that the servant girl had been frightened senseless, and then made my way towards the house where the specter in white was said to appear. I had expected that the house would be locked, and that I could return with that news. I tried the door. No such lock. It opened and allowed me in. Now it was clear that the house had been built in at least two stages, and that there was a newer, outer layer to the house, possibly a former patio, now enclosed, to which I had gained access, and an inner layer, which comprised the original structure. The doors to the inner part of the house were locked. Nonetheless, I had done what was asked, I had entered the house, if only the outer portion, and I could now return. I headed back across the meadow that surrounded the house, and then to the frightening possibility of the bridge, eager to get back to camp. After all, the sooner I reported back, the sooner I could be an adult again and consign ghosts and demons to the category of silly things that I don't believe in. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's G H O. S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com Also, please visit the Ghost anthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com That's kmmamedia.com Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky! <laughs>